we sing because we're commanded to and because we love God and we want to teach through that. But we also spend a significant part, part of our Sunday mornings studying the Word of God together. And yes, we're in the Old Testament, but this, the Word of God is inspired and it's written, not written directly to us, but is written for us as well. Every last word and verse of it. So we open up God's Word together as a family and we study the Word of God every single week. So I see the sun's back, and we thank God for the sun. But if you're in the sun and it's bugging you, there's other seeds. Feel free to move and, and check things out. We've run out of sunglasses. They keep leaving. So um, it was beautiful this morning, wasn't it? Man, I came, I came here well before it got daylight, and I went outside at 8 o'clock to move my truck. And I'm like, wow, what an amazing God that we serve. So turn to Exodus chapter 5. As we begin our fourth sermon in our study of Exodus, I want us to begin with a word challenge. You'll see it up on the screen. I don't want you to say it out loud, but can I have the next slide, please? There it is. Don't blurt out what you read. So I want to know how you read this phrase. How many of you read it as, God is nowhere? Okay, next slide, please. How many of you read it as, God is now here? And the rest of you are sleeping. <laughs> or don't understand English, I guess. Like the spiritual journey that we're on, the faith adventure that God has called, called us to, it really does matter how we read our lives, how we understand God, and what is happening around us in the world. And in our little spot that God has placed us. As we process all that, that will determine whether we think God is nowhere or whether we actually believe that God is here now, right now, amongst us. And if you're here this morning and you read it as God is nowhere and that's where you are in life right now, can I just say thank you for being with us? Thank you for trusting us this morning. But know that our God loves you. And that our God is the almighty creator God who is alive and is doing well. I have four phrases for us this morning as I walk through this passage of Exodus. I do this so that helps us move through passages, handles that we can hold on to. So dangerous worship, busy work, linchpin leaders, and then this weird phrase, a deus abscontitus. Say that last one with me. Deus abscontitus. There's something fun with that later. So first phrase this morning is dangerous worship. So I'm not going to read the past, the whole thing ahead of time. So let me just pause and pray before we look at dangerous worship. So Father, I love you. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for those that are here every week and those that are here maybe for the first time today. Thank you for salvation that we yesterday at the funeral that we got to just, just look death in the faith and say, as believers, we have hope. Now as we turn to this Old Testament book again this week, Father, may the words that come out of my mouth be pleasing to you. May the meditation of my heart be what you want it to be. For God, you are my rock. You never change. And you are your, my redeemer. You continually conform me into your likeness. And may that be the case with everyone in here. And we love you, Father. We pray in your name. Amen. So we're in the book of Exodus, and we're in the place where the let my people go phrase is said over and over and over. 
This is the first speech where, where Moses will make that claim to Pharaoh. But I want us to be very clear from the beginning as we study this morning that, that he is demanding Pharaoh to let the people go, but it's not simply so they could just be free. It's, it's not simply because they were living in an unjust system for over 400 years. They were in brutality and slavery. These are true, but the particular reason and, and, and that, that God is asking Pharaoh to tell Moses this will be made extremely clear in our passage this morning. So I want to start in the Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, and just the first phrase of it. After this presentation to Israel's leaders. So we have to think back. Last week we looked at the call of Moses, the burning bush in Exodus 3 and halfway through Exodus 4. So what I want to do just briefly is I want to summarize the last half of the chapter of Exodus. So after his experience at the burning bush, Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he asks permission to leave Midian and go back to Egypt, his home country. Jethro grants him permission to begin his journey back with his family and his two sons, and in his hand, he carries the staff of God, which we talked about last year. It's been over 40 years since he's been in Midian. He went there fleeing away, and now he's heading back to his hometown. And on the way back, the Lord gives him extremely clear instructions on what is supposed to do when he gets back to Egypt. And we find that in verse 21 and 22a. When you arrive back in Egypt, Moses, go to Pharaoh. He's probably freaking in his boots. Like, I've got to go to this man. And perform all the miracles I have empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Remember that phrase. We'll come back to it at the end. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I command you, let my son go so he can worship me. This is Moses' charge from God. This is his job. So on, he, he gets this charge, and they're moving towards Egypt. And on the way there, we, we, we get this interesting passage that, that God is upset with Moses, and he wants to kill Moses. And as I read this, I'm like, God, you just gave him this incredible charge, and now you want to knock him off? What, what's up with that? And it had to do with the fact that Moses had not circumcised his, his oldest son, as the law, the Old Testament, required. And under the Old Testament law, failing to circumcise your sons was to remove yourself from God's blessing. To say, hey, I'm, I'm really not part of God's family. So whatever lame excuse, last week Moses had five lame excuses. So whatever lame excuse that Moses gave here, it was not a real excuse. And God was saying, Moses, I don't care what you think. It's more dangerous to disobey me than to go to confront, for, confront Pharaoh. I'm the one that you need to be concerned about. God was saying, you cannot effectively serve me as my deliverer for my people until you fulfill the conditions of what I've asked you to do. And basically he's saying, you need to be obedient to what I told you to do. Isn't that the case in our life often? Yeah, I want to serve God, but I want to do it on my own terms. God's asked me to do that, and I'll kind of be right at the edge, and I'll be here for a while, and then I'll be here. 
And, and Moses was getting called out by God and saying, no, I've asked you. This is part of the covenant. This is something you're going to do. If you're going to be one of my people, a chosen leader, you have to do what I asked you to do. God instituted circumcision for the Israelites to show that, hey, they are my people. We're not under the covenant of Old Testament anymore. We're underneath the blood of Jesus Christ. We have the new covenant. But God does ask us that we circumcise our heart. That we, we transform our minds. So that we have a pure heart and a pure mind that stands before God. So it's really the same. God's asking you to obey. To be the people he's called you to be. And Moses was not doing it. So Moses doesn't even circumcise his son. His wife, Zipporah, does. And after that happens, God's anger resides and they move on to Egypt. And when they get back to Egypt, the first thing Moses and Aaron do is they call all the elders of the country and, and all the Israelite elders together, not the Egyptians officials, but the, El, the Israelites, and they, they told, him exactly, told them exactly what God was intending to do. And when they heard this, verse 31 says, they were concerned about them, the Lord was, and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Worshipped is a key word this morning. So back to chapter 5. Back to chapter 5, verse 1. After this presentation to Israel's leaders, do you understand what presentation it is now? Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh, shaking in their boots. They told them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Now this is not just any festival. This is a worship party for three days. Verse 3 tells us it's a three-day-long worship party. Moses is not asking Pharaoh to let them go to a county fair where there will be fair rides and corn dogs and that type of things. No, he says they're going to a festival of worship of the great I Am. And I want my people to worship me. And we know this because every time Moses goes back to Pharaoh in the next all the way through chapter, chapter 10, we see that phrase, let my people go. Okay, show the next slide, please. So you can see all the different examples that Moses goes to Pharaoh, and every time he says, let my people go so that they can what? Worship me. Make no mistake about it. Here in the first 15 chapters of Exodus, and all the 15 chapters that are about liberation, about being set free from bondage, from, from getting out of dodge. But it's important to remember the reason why God wanted to take them out of dodge. It's so that they could worship God. But listen to Pharaoh's response in verse 2. Is that so? retorted Pharaoh. Who and who is this Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So what's the big deal? Why would Pharaoh be so threatened by the request to let the Israelites just go and worship just, just for a little while? They'd be only gone three days, but as followers of Christ, we know what happens in three days, right? The resurrection of Jesus. Amazing things can happen. If you give God just a little bit of your time, amazing things can happen. So why was Pharaoh himself so threatened? It was because of this. Worship is a dangerous enterprise. I'm not talking about just any worship. Because you can come in here on a Sunday morning. I love that you, you're here. You can come here and not worship. 
It's all about the mind. It's all about the heart. It's all about being present in the moment of worship. I, I'm talking about any time where you come to the place and you fix your mind and you fix your heart fully on the thing, on the one who is worthy of being worshipped. And when you do that, completely, fully surrendered, dangerous things happen. There's a transformation that happens in our minds and in our hearts as a result it just doesn't affect us. It affects how we live in the world and, and those around us. That's true worship. So many things distract us from worship. When I gather, when you gather here, and we consider Christ, and we consider the work of Christ upon the cross, we consider the blood, when we focus our minds on the mercy and the compassion and the, the welcome and the, the love and the grace and the reconciliation of our Savior, here's what happens. Our, our, our mind gets fixed on those things. With our heart beating for Jesus, we begin to line up with Jesus, and we're moldable. And we put Jesus back on the throne where he belongs. When we worship together and we worship individually, we take on the character of the one that we're worshiping. We are created to worship. And we will worship something, right? God is calling us to be free so that we can worship the great I am. So if, so if the one that we are coming to worship is God, the God who sets his people free, the God, did Pharaoh know this God? Verse 2 says he did not know the Lord. If we truly believe what we have sung, if we truly believe what we have read, then we cannot come to a time of worship, either corporately or individually, and we cannot leave that time as angry or as resentful or as bitter as when we first came. We cannot leave as hopeless as when we first came. We cannot let sin reign over our lives. Because in worship, we fix our mind and our hearts on the one who allows us to see our existence in a brand new way. And Pharaoh knew that. Even if he didn't know the Lord. Pharaoh knew that the moment that he gave them three days, two days, or even one day to worship, he would lose them. There's power in worship. He knows it's just not about singing songs or listening to sermons. Pharaoh knew that, that worship is a dangerous enterprise because they will gather to sing. They will gather to hear sermons. They will gather to dance before the Lord. They will gather to sacrifice offerings to the Lord. And he knows that they will be changed that something in them will be changed and he will not get them back. The theological shaping power of worship has such power that it has the possibility of threatening the politics of the empire then and now. And it doesn't matter if our worship is in the wilderness in Egypt or if our worship is in an orphanage in Mexico or if our worship is in a cathedral in Europe or if we're gathered around a family dinner table, or if you're on the beach alone by yourself with God, the truth is when we catch a glimpse of God and the beauty of God, it changes things. And that's what true worship does. 
So that leads me to ask a question that I ask myself often. How dangerous is your worship? Are you continually putting yourself in a position where the Spirit can transform you? Where you humbly go before God and say, God, I'm yours. Have my heart. Have my mind. Have my mind. Have my heart. Have my strength. I want to put you back on the throne of my life. How dangerous is your worship? Or are you stuck in a routine? You wake up at 7 o'clock on Sunday morning, oh, I got to go to church. How dangerous is your worship? Pharaoh knew that worship had the power to call into question his authority. We know that God, when we worship, will question, look into our hearts. And we will know, honestly, if God is on the throne of our hearts or if it's something else. Worship is a dangerous enterprise. So which leads to the second movement of the sermon, busy work. I hate busy work. When I was a kid, I did not like school because of all the busy work. I know teachers will say, hey, busy work is an invaluable part of learning. It requires busy work when, when someone finishes early and it keeps semblances of control in the classroom. Uh, busy work keeps kids from crawling up the walls. I just want to get to the point and get it done. When Pharaoh instituted busy work, do you know what he was up to? He had a purpose for it. He was forcing them to do something that was intended. He was forcing them to get away from worship, which was intending them to, to, to center themselves back on God. So he just kept them busy. He was keeping them from worship. Read, let's all read these next few verses together. Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their tasks? Get back to work. Look, there are many of your people in the land, and you are stopping them from their work. That same day, Pharaoh sent this order to the Egyptian slave drivers and the Elizabeth foremen. Do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they are crying out. Let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. So he makes it complicated for them. If it wasn't complicated enough already. The brick building system is fairly simple. But it's back breaking work. It's a combination of mud and straw as a binding element. Sometimes they even throw manure into the pits. And usually the slaves would get right into those pits. And they would mix it up with their hands. And then they would take the, the, the manure and the mud and the, the straw. And they would put it in these little boxes. And they would shape the bricks and how they wanted them to be shaped. And then they would lay them out and they would let them dry up to 15 hours they would let them dry and then they would put them in a fire they would cure them and they would make bricks after brick after brick day after day after day it was busy work and pharaoh knew that they needed straw he had provided it for the israelites for hundreds of years and now he said uh-uh i'm taking the straw away go find your uh, own but know what he did he required them to make the same amount of bricks impossible the busy work that he creates, he creates a problem. 
But the motive behind why he is doing it is, is fascinating. This is what it says, verse, verse 9. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to what? Lies. That's his motive. Why make it harder on them? Not just to be cruel, but they, that they would not listen to the lies. What lies is he talking about? That they need to go out and worship. Because when we enter into worship, our words matter. Our actions are deliberate. They are not by accident. And Pharaoh knew what Moses was calling them to. We shape and we form words in order to have a shaping impact on our lives and others around us. A shaping impact to make you aware that, hey, God is great. God is holy. You can be free. You, no you don't have hope. There's hope in Christ. If you're buried in sin, hey, there's hope for you as well. That you can partner with God in his building his kingdom. Worship brings life. And Pharaoh knew that. And Pharaoh knew that worship would upset his authority and his structure. So he calls all that, that like, don't listen to Moses. He's just lying to you. This is your life right now. It brings me to this thought. We don't have to be living in ancient Egypt to be enslaved by brick-making mind. Right? The brick-making mind is, is, is being committed to or being enslaved to any kind of work that keeps us from our primary, most important work in life, which is worship. The pursuit of knowing and being known by our Father in heaven. You and I don't live in an oppressive empire like Egypt or Rome, but there is a spiritual batter that wages all around us. And one of the tools that Satan uses is consumerism. Because we have been groomed from a very young age to think that our worth, our value, our significance in this life has something to do with what we acquire, achieve, or accumulate. We climb, we contend, we compete, we compare our lives with others. And often we run in the direction of getting more and more and more stuff, making us busier and busier and busier. And more is not better, more is just more. Amen? And that more enslaves us. Whatever, works keep, whatever work keeps you from your work of worship is what is enslaving you. But pastor, if I don't give my kids all these opportunities, they're not going to have but what is all this busyness telling them about who's on the throne of your life? You know the irony of this whole thing? There's a word we use for our worship. It's called liturgy. Our order of worship is our liturgy. Some churches are a lot more liturgical than other churches. More responsive readings and so forth. But liturgy comes from the word liturgia. And do you know what liturgia really means? The service or work of the people. The primary work of the people is to worship the great I am. To adore and magnify and focus on the one who gives us life. Who sustains us. That's our number one job. Everything else is just busy work. Things that we have to do sometimes. And anyone or anything that keeps you from worship is not from God, it's from Pharaoh, it's from Satan. 
We make choices that keep us from worship all the time. And all of a sudden, this work that we think is so worthy has kept us away from the one who is most worthy of all. It's all busy work. And Pharaoh knew that, and Satan knows that. And I'm not just talking Sunday mornings. I'm talking all throughout the week. You know who was caught in this tension in this passage? Middle management. Egyptian slave drivers and Israelite foremen were caught in the middle. They knew Pharaoh's requirement was to produce the same number of bricks, and they began to fail. And they begin to beat each other and they get mad at each other. And both of them are trying to make it happen. The busy work continue. Which raises a significant question in verses 20, 10 through 20. We're not going to read it now. I hope you read it this week. The Israelite foremen are in a unique position known as linchpin leaders. They understood what Pharaoh was requiring, but they also know what it was like to be a Hebrew. Have you ever been stuck between two places? Where you understand that tension? One who stands between the one who calls your uncle too liberal and your aunt too conservative? One who has two brothers who are fighting and can't get along? One who has a friend who's living in sin and knows what God says about it? Lynchpin leaders are the ones that stand in the gap and aim for reconciliation. We've read about it, we've all read about it in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus calls those people what? Peacemakers. Peacemakers who stand between two warring parties. I think of 2 Corinthians 5.18. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ Jesus. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Our first and primary task in reconciliation is help people know Jesus better. But then we also have the task as believers is to stand in as a linchpin leader and help people reconcile with each other. We do a terrible job at that in our culture. Somewhere in your life you have been placed as a linchpin leader. To stand between two warring parties. Maybe somebody that's being oppressed. What have you done with that position. The, twer, the, tw- the 21st century church must learn to live in its identity as a peacemaker. So where is God calling you to be a peacemaker? But then let me ask you this. You can step in as a peacemaker and do it not in a godly way. Are you doing it in a Christ-like way? Are your motives and your attitude and your actions Do they point people to Jesus Christ? That's the key. That's the key. So, fourth point, final movement, day use of skandatus. Let's all read the next few verses. So the Israelite foreman went to Pharaoh and pleaded with him. Pharaoh shouted, you're just lazy, lazy, lazy. As though and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now get back to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still produce the full quota of bricks. 
as they left Pharaoh's court, they confronted Moses and Aaron, waiting outside for them. The foreman said to them, May the Lord judge and punish you for making us stink before Pharaoh and his officials. You have put a sword into their hands and an excuse to kill us. So the foremans come out and they blame Moses and Aaron. This whole thing stinks because of you. Standing in the middle stinks sometimes, doesn't it? They're not listening. He's not listening. We're getting beat. We, our people are working like dogs. That's how it is sometimes in Egypt and beyond. We do not see Moses responding to him in this passage at all. And I believe the reason we don't see Moses responding to him, because he knows it stinks. He knows that what's going on. So he turns to the Lord instead. Listen to verse 22. Then Moses went back to the Lord and protested, Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why do you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people, and you have done what? Nothing to rescue them. Remember the last time last week when he turned? He turned to the Lord because he saw the Lord in the burning bush. Now he turned to the Lord because he's saying, Lord, I don't even know if you're moving here. Where have you been? This whole thing stinks. You told me last week that you would be with me. I voiced to you that I'm not qualified. I had all these lame excuses. Thank you, Pastor Stuckey. I don't have talents. You said, don't worry. It'll be okay. I'll go with you. I'll be with you. It's going to be good. And it's gotten worse. Look what's happening. On the one hand, I love this passage because it gives us as readers the permission to be honest with God. It's okay to be honest with God. You ever been in a place where you felt betrayed by God? Ever been in a place where you open up your life and say, God, I think you're calling me to this, and my answer is yes. And then you say yes. And you're like, where'd you go, God? And you feel like you're being abandoned. Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a phrase for it. And the phrase was Deus absconditus, which means the God who is hidden. Just like the opening phrase that I shared with you. God is nowhere or God is now here. It's all about how you read this story. It's all about how you see your life. It's, it's all about who you worship and how you're worshiping and what you believe about God. Because life's going to get hard and God's going to seem like he's abandoning you and that's when your faith digs in deep. Because the, Moses in this chapter does not see or does not hear God. And God really doesn't speak in this whole section. But you and I have the benefit. We know the beginning and we know the end. If we turn back to chapter 4, there's one verse that puts this all in perspective, one we read earlier and I told you to pay attention to. But I, that's God, will harden his, Pharaoh's heart, so he will refuse to let the people go. God was hardening Pharaoh's heart, which raises a whole bunch of questions. Why would you harden somebody's heart, God? What does that look like for us today? That's a whole other sermon. But this truth is here to remind us that even when Moses could not see God moving, could not trace his presence, God was at work hardening Pharaoh's heart. 
Because God is sovereign and he knows what needs to happen. Because Pharaoh's heart had to be hard enough that eventually it would have to break later. Because the people in bondage had to get weary enough of their, their bondage that they were willing to say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you out of Dodge. And Moses had to trust God hard enough and depend on him long enough so that he knew that when he came to the next few chapters are going to be very interesting. And he had to trust God, and he had to learn that. Next week we're going to cover chapters 6 through 11, so read it before you go. And come next week. What if God is up to something in your life and you can't see it? Does that change the fact that God is up to something or point out the fact that you can't see it? Romans 8 says, In all things God's work. God is working for the good of those who love him. Is there a possibility? Is there a possibility there's a difference between God being invisible and God being absent? Just because you can't see God does not mean he's not there. Just because you can't see God does not mean he's not working. Maybe today our prayer that leads us to worship, needs to sound something like this. God, I recognize something in me today. I recognize that worship ought to be dangerous. Lord, I, I recognize I've been seeking comfortable worship. I've been seeking to have my ears tickled when I come into your presence. But I know and I'm recognizing that you're up to something around in me and in the world around me. You're wanting to disturb something in me so that it transforms the way that I worship. It transforms the way I exist in this world. But I want to acknowledge, God, that I've been exhausted by busy work. All these things that I thought mattered, that in the end they really don't matter. I need to confess that today. Here are the things, God, that I need to loosen my grip on to let you take up the primary place in my heart so that I can worship you and put you back on the throne of my life. So I admit, God, that sometimes it feels like you've abandoned me. So this week, may I see you working. Give me a glimpse. And when I can't see, God, may my faith grow deeper and deeper. Because, God, you're doing massive things in me to free me from my bondage. So, God, please work. God's now here. We need to live like that. So what needs to change in your life? So your worship can be dangerous. When you believe that God is here now, it changes how we live, does it not? It changes it. And our priorities change. So it's just, I told Stacey in bed last night, I said, I just, this, this whole message this week has just been, it's just, I hope it came out in a way that you understand my heart and God's heart. Because this is where it's at. The heart of worship. God wants you to be free so you can worship him. And then to live how he wants you to live.